Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your local community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we are talking with two guests today here on the Montpelier Happy Hour. First, I want to welcome Paul Costello, the Executive Director of the Vermont Council on Rural Development. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Olga. Glad to be here. And I'm very excited to welcome to the show for the first time, Susanna, uh, sorry, Susanna Davis, Racial Equity Director for the State of Vermont. So glad you can join us today. Thanks for having me. And as many people will know, regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. So glad you're here today too, Emily. So glad to be here with this great group of people. I know, and we get to get really geeky about resiliency today. Yay. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Susanna and Paul are part of the Local Support and Community Action Team, which is part of a task force set up by Governor Scott called the Vermont Economic Mitigation and Recovery Task Force. And for those who probably have noticed we're in a pandemic and we had to shut down our community uh, to uh, help fight that pandemic and gee, now we need to go into the recovery process or I think that's where we're started to head. Um, so Paul or, or Susanna, I'd love to start with just a quick um, explanation for folks who don't know. What is your team tasked with? What, what are you looking at um, as part of this process? I'm happy to go first, Susanna, on this. Um, the, when you think of the, the, the challenge of recovery, the governor's got three different um, groups of people working. And one is working on how to help employers make shifts, look at their fin financial situation, think about state federal resources and how um, businesses remain whole. Another group is looking at how we step-by-step -step open up the economy. What are the protocols for um, store openings, for the state parks, for different kinds of businesses? Um, and our group is looking at community recovery in a very broad way. So that means everything from looking at what's being done to address the challenges of homelessness and foods to, um, to downtowns and community action groups. Uh, so it's very broad. We've, we think, we're thinking of recovery in, in a, as a three-phase process um, where there's the crisis of the pandemic period where we're really responding to the central health issue as the fundamental challenge to where we have a middle ground where we're beginning to see reopening and we're looking at what's within the power of communities for action to support their local economy. Uh, and then the third phase where we're really looking at what Vermont needs to do to recover. Um, you can't really recover back to something. Um, and, and we all know that rural Vermont communities, Brattleboro, um, the whole region, has had some fundamental challenges de with demographics, with youth, with um, economic, uh, ec economic stagnation in some places. And we really need to look to how we renew the economy for the future. So our committee has taken on a, a really broad charge. Um, we're working really hard at it. Um, and it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna take a while. Thank you, Paul. Susanna, do you wanna add anything no, I think I think that was a great overview. Perhaps I would just add that one of the things that I really appreciate about this subgroup is that we're doing a lot of talking and a lot of thinking about how to move equitably and, you know, not just looking at business for business's sake, but looking at all the different types of businesses and the different sizes of businesses and community groups uh, and how everybody can can push forward together. Thank you. Well, when you first started, um, I noticed that you said shut down the community, and that's what we had done. And I think it's more accurate to say we had paused the economy, because what I've seen is that in a lot of ways, our community is has been stronger through this process. Um, we've seen a resurgence in volunteerism, um, especially a lot younger volunteers that we've been looking for for a long time. And suddenly, you know, the opportunity has been there for folks to step up when they were really needed. 
We've seen people talking to their neighbors more than they have before. We've seen our food system collaborate much more effectively than before. We've seen folks who have been marginally housed for a decade sometimes have you know the privacy and security of a bed and a room with a door. And so what I'm hoping when we talk about um, moving from sort of the middle time into a recovery period, that some of those incredible community successes can be carried forward into what economic resiliency might look like. I'm glad you said that, Emily, because one of the things I have been very fascinated by with, with COVID-19, and we've talked about this on the show before, is you know the, the cracks we've seen in our systems caused, caused by COVID-19 were, were there to begin with. And, and how do we come back from, from this experience stronger? You know, I keep going back to Tropical Storm Irene, and I know they're, they're two different events and their, their ripple effects have been different as well. But one thing that really has, has stood out in my memory is when we went into the recovery process, Governor Shumlin at the time was really clear, at least as far as infrastructure was concerned, about resiliency and not just repairing things to where they were, but repairing infrastructure so that it could handle more floods in the future, bigger water events, stronger rains, that type of thing. And, and I thought that very clear definition of, of what recovery and resiliency looked like really helped a lot of communities move forward with their Irene projects. So I'm wondering in this case for the um, community action team, what definition of resiliency are you working with? I would say that we don't have a hard definition. And in fact, part of what's different between today and, and Irene was that Irene was a blow. It struck, it, was, it hit everyone. People were galvanized and people came together and guys with backhoes could get together and clear roads. Um, you know, the, and people could cook for each other and people helped like lending tools or, you know, using front porch forum to invite someone who needed a place to stay for a couple days to be in their back bedroom. You know, it was remarkable, but it was, it had that one blow urgency and then everyone was united in answering that. Um, fundamental to resiliency from my point of view is that resiliency is not a flat stasis. It's like sustainability. Is there a sustainable place that's like this? No. Life is punctuated. Things change all the time. The future is not like the past. So resiliency isn't the resiliency after, after Irene. Um, and in fact, we know if, you know, if we've learned one thing about COVID, we've learned to pay attention to science and to what scientists are telling us around our, this health and pandemic and how you manage a pandemic, right? When we look at other issues that are going to be fundamental to our long-term resilience, like climate change and its cascading impacts, we have to pay attention closely to science as we look forward to anticipate what some of those issues are going to be, to prepare and to build solutions in advance. So uh, as I think about resiliency, I think that resiliency, it, just as it's not a, a hard thing that's done, <laughs> um, it's a work in progress, even in its definition, because it's part of the way that we live over time. Um, to me, there's fundamental lessons from the crucible we're living in. And some of those have to do with resiliency in the healthcare system. What do we need to do to be prepared for future pandemic? Um, and the, the other huge thing around this, the difference between today and, and Irene is the uncertainty that we still face. You know, we're looking at a, a set of practices, both on the economy side and in terms of our own personal behavior and social distances. I mean, I would love to see my grandkids and hug them, but I can't, and that's devastating to me right now. But I don't know when I'm going to. You know, none of us know when we're going to have the freedom that we used to have for personal connection. And, and that's like a fundamental psychological challenge to us right now. It makes us really, and how, how is that going to ease and how long are we going to have to deal with that 
And obviously that springs all kinds of tensions. So when we think about recovery, part of it is gonna be economic and part of it's going to be, how do we get back together? How do we remain close? How do we deal with isolation? How do we um, grow together in this, in this challenge? And people have responded and there's an enormous, as Emily's saying, an enormous upwelling of community energy. And you know, VCRD is working with a lot of those people. Um, but it's, it's a, everyone says it's not a sprint, it's, uh, it's, it's a marathon. And we're probably, we're probably not, um, we're probably not halfway through. Um, and I, so that, that's part of the challenges that we're going to have to come out of this. Um, and I, I don't want to keep going on and on, but clearly there's fundamental infrastructure issues that are essential to resiliency in the wake of COVID that we weren't paying as hard attention to. Some of those are around health, but others are, are the obvious broadband implications. And Laura Sibelia down your way has been an, in, an incredible champion of, of universal affordable broadband services. When you think about the injustice of people at the end of the dirt road who may be of lower income, whose children aren't getting the, the same educational opportunities as other children today, or whose grandparents who are isolated and who can't receive telehealth services because they lack broadband, um, that, that's a fundamental uh, imbalance that, that the COVID crisis is pointing to as, uh, as something that for our future resilience we have to be addressing. Um, likewise, the implications for climate action, for being prepared for um, the, the, the changes in weather that we've already been seeing and that are going to continue or, uh, or be worse. And with that, the economic opportunities as we look to the renewal of our economy to be a place that invents solutions and captures the imagination of entrepreneurs, engineers, young people who are purposive and want to be part of answering problems, not just, not just adding them. And you know, a lot of people are sitting in a stew of adding up all the problems and feeling a lot of despair right now. And as a society, we have to set, uh, set direction have courage and line up together to say, uh, we're, not, we're not just gonna be victims here, we're going to seize the day and build a better future for our community and for our state. And people are doing that, but we're, we're, we've gotta add it up so that we have kind of collective conviction and, and uh, common faith, I think, around our success. Can I reflect a little bit on what you said and ask you a question from that reflection, Susanna? Um, so when I think about the word resiliency, and I've spent a lot of time in social service circles. Um, it has very sort of specific meanings around an ability to weather uncertainty and bounce back from that. Um, an ability to sort of sit in uncertainty, an ability to find the tools necessary in that uncertainty to move into the future or to get what needs to get done done without um, getting lost in the uncertainty um, and spinning from it. And so that's what it means in, when we talk about, you know, youth resiliency or um, psychological resiliency for people who have experienced trauma. And then when I think about the Irene recovery that referred to and sort of the single below and then the recovery from it, there are pieces of our community that were um, more impacted than others and were at a disadvantage before Irene and have still not recovered. So we have the largest mobile home park in the state um, here in Brattleboro, Mountain Home Trailer Park. And they are still suffering significantly from the effects of Irene, um, both individually and as a community that's trying to come together. So I'm wondering from you, Susanna, as you think about um, what resiliency means for different communities within Vermont and what an equitable recovery might look like and how we can really like actually imagine that together as a community, because it takes tremendous resilience to imagine our way into the future. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest questions is when we imagine that future, who do we see with us in that mm -hmm. future? And that's a really big question because as Paul said, we're not working with one fixed definition of resilience because it looks different for different people and for different entities. For one community group or local business, resiliency might just mean staying alive, staying in business throughout this. For another, it might mean 
um, having stable revenue levels throughout the pandemic and afterwards. So resiliency is going to look different for different groups. One of the things that is different about this situation from Irene is that with Irene, there was disparate impact to different communities. And that was because of something outside of our doing. It was a, a, it was a, a weather event. Mm -hmm. In this case, the disparate impact that we're seeing comes from measures that we have chosen to take as a society to protect ourselves from a pandemic. And so the disparate impact that we're seeing really has to do with things like economic slowdowns or distancing measures or what have you. And that's not to say that any of those, that any of those practices are, are bad. I think they've done a whole lot of, of good to help protect people in the state and in the country. Um, but it's interesting that we, we have to recover from, essentially from measures that we've imposed on ourselves. And so that begs the question, our, are our policies, um, are, our, are the benefits and burdens of policy equitably distributed among different populations? And I think time and time again, we've seen that they're not. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not speaking about us as a state, but rather just us in the United States. It tends to be the case that low-income communities, communities of color, members of the LGBTQIA community, people living with disabilities, and more all tend to bear the brunt of weather events, um, public health disasters, economic events, much more strongly than dominant group people do. And so when we think about uh, what does it look like to be resilient when we consider all of the diverse communities in Vermont, this is really critical because Vermont is a beautiful, wonderful place. I enjoy being here, I'm glad that I came. And yet events like this really highlight how difficult it is for people who are not from Vermont or for people who don't look like uh, what you might think a Vermonter looks like to be able to thrive or at least just survive in this kind of a circumstance. I've been getting reports, a steady stream of reports about anti-Asian bias, harassment, vandalism of local businesses owned by Asian Vermonters, um, having to do with linking a racial group to this pandemic. I've also heard increasing um, reports about people who are being profiled and stereotyped and harassed simply because they have out-of-state license plates. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I had out-of-state license plates, but I live in Vermont and have dedicated myself to public service for Vermonters. I feel as much a part of the state's community as anyone. And yet, is that what people see when I'm driving down 89? So it's really important that we recognize the, the, the presence of our second homeowners, our visitors, our new arrivals, whether they've come from another country or from another state, and the, important that, the important role that they play in our state. And so thinking about being resilient, I think we really have to ask ourselves uh, to your question, when we think about the future, who are we imagining in it and why? Do we only think of people who look like us, who talk like us, who are similarly situated from an economic perspective, or are we including all the regions? Are we including uh, people of different socioeconomic classes? Are we including people of different ethnic and racial groups? And this is going to be really important because the, the country is watching, right? Are watching how we handle this. We already know that Vermont was set to be a receiver state for climate migration, uh, people who are leaving other parts of the country for more climate resilient places. And with this pandemic, we're seeing increasingly that people who live in more urban areas are looking to move to more rural areas. So I think on both fronts, Vermont is really set or, or really poised to receive an influx of desperately needed people to bolster the population, to ensure that we have enough working age people to support our aging population, and to just keep the state fresh, keep the state alive, and keep us innovating. How we receive those people will make or break the future of our state. Olga and uh, I have I'll, been, sorry. I was gonna say, I'll, I'll leave it there for now, but, but there really is so much more to say about that, about our demographic uh, challenges and, and the importance of not just tolerating 
um, visitors and second homeowners and saying, we will want your tax money, but we don't want you. And when the world gets scary, we're gonna make sure that you know that we don't want you. It's not about just tolerating people. Um, it's about really saying, you know what, you're part of the community and you may not have been here for nine generations, but you're here now and you're here by choice and that, that's meaningful. So Olga and I have been talking, um, I, I think almost every episode over the last few months about this idea that Vermont has been um, an apocalypse respite place for more than a hundred years. Um, at each wave of migration that we've had here has been folks who are in some ways escaping what they see as an insufferable situation in cities towards sometimes towards a utopian vision, sometimes away from a dystopian vision, but that, you know, we've had many waves of migration like that. Um, and what that means for how it transforms our communities. And so there's that thread that I really appreciate you bringing into this. And then there's even the fact that we keep on reflecting back on Irene leaves, you know, some people who were here for Irene and have this very, you know, resonant Vermont strong community spirit from that includes them. And then those of us who are not very, I just happened to be spending a few years in Burlington during Irene, which was barely affected by it. And so I was in state, but just didn't happen to be in Brattleboro at that moment and all and feel a little isolated when people talk about Irene. Um, that's a great so, point. That's a great point because, you know, I mean, I'm coming from New York. And so when you, when I hear Vermonters talk about Irene, I can empathize because in 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy. Yes. And so in, to your point, there are folks who are within the state of Vermont who had very different experiences of Irene. And yet you have someone like me who comes from a different jurisdiction, but who had a very similar experience um, to what happened in Irene. And so the commonalities between people from different places, I think we really, I don't think we always recognize how similar people's experiences really can be, even if you're not from this state, mm -hmm. or how different your experiences can be, even if you are from this same state. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's such a wonderful point. Um, Emily, did you want to say? Um, I guess I'm just, I'm wondering what the next step is from here. Um, I've also been, you know, you said the middle, the middle ground. I've been talking about the middle time. That's sort of the phrase I forced everyone in my workplace to start using when we do planning, because um, it makes it sound more exciting and mystical. But if we think about an inclusive recovery, if we think about the new folks who are already moving here, I haven't, you know, I got a new neighbor two weeks ago. Um, the new folks that are coming here, the strength of community spirit that we've seen over the couple months and how to really bring people into that to sustain it rather than having it be sort of a, you know, a peak and then um, a trough. We have to think, we have to think creatively. And I don't mean that as a um, platitude. I mean, we really need to help people move out of the crisis mode of, I just need enough money to pay the bills and rent on my, you know, um, commercial space this month into what, what is, what are things going to look like in the fall? What are things going to look like two years from now? What do we want to build from this? And I don't, I'm curious how we're going to do that, how we're really going to help people start thinking in that, you know, from crisis to creation. And before Paul or Susanna answers that, um, what I would like to add, what, what Emily just said that kind of triggered for me was you know, we want to move from crisis to creation, which is so exciting, but there's always that stuff we bring with us <laughs> that may be more baggage than, than useful, um, like a scarcity mentality that Emily and I have talked about before. Um, so, so yeah, how do we move into creation and still like acknowledge the stuff that either we need to drop or we need to heal or we need to address, um, I think is a, is a layer that can sometimes catch us off guard yeah. um, when we're moving forward as well. I, I think it's a really interesting question because we, when COVID hit, you know, we're a community organizing entity. We go town to town. We were gearing up to go to Barrie. We had half the cabinet and 
a number of state leaders coming with us. We were going to bring 350 people together, probably in various. Susanna had been with us in Rockingham not that long ago, um, where we rally the community, we help people set big goals. Um, and suddenly all those meetings were impossible. And the idea that you're going to take a couple of months to set priorities for your community and gear up is also unrealistic. People are ready to, there's a priority right now, which is dealing with the health threat. And it feels to me like we're just beginning to turn in terms of communities. One of the things that happened with our organization is we immediately started seeing um, local groups springing up everywhere for COVID recovery and mutual aid. And a lot of them didn't, um, you know, Brattleboro's got some really good work going forward. But some communities, especially smaller towns, they're, they're kind of doing it from scratch and they don't necessarily know what other towns are doing. And some groups like the Northeast Kingdom Collaborative and folks around Bethel um, were doing really creative work to bring together their regions. And we got into a, a circle of folks that were doing that. And we said, Let, let's together build a backbone so that these groups come together every week, so that they're able to share best practices, so that they're able to you know, interface effectively with their municipality and with state resources and um, sort of become part of a, a unity in response. And, and, and the thing that strikes me is that it's not all about government and it's not all about top-down organizing. Um, we have to have faith in people too, that there's an energy that's kind of organic to the ground, community to community that springs up. And I think that energy is, it's like, are we at a point where people are starting to think about the next phase of creation? Because there's all kinds of people are, everyone's sharing music online or they're, everyone's got a, a like a little skit they're doing for their grandkids or whatever. And how do we, how, how does that energy start to turn back to creativity for the future of the economy? We already have uh, like some fascinating things that have gone on underneath the, sort of the surface of our economy. A lot of people have been working from home for a long time. A lot of people work for businesses in San Francisco or, or in Europe, and they live in Barnard or, or Topsom, and they're, they're connecting in lots of different ways. How do we sort of seize the opportunities of the global economy while we increase and strengthen our local economy? Um, how do we bring our stores back by redevoting ourselves to local purchasing? Um, I've been working with Front Porch Forum, where they're thinking about how do we build a way to click local instead of click to, to Amazon? How do we systematically look at how we interface with our economy with convenience, um, but where we're not you know, shipping our dollars out of state um, and shipping all the profits and the, 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 all, all the benefits that go with that um, to, to some corporate entity instead of to the mom and pop bookstore on the corner. And so there's, a, there's just a lot of opportunity for creativity um, on the ground. And um, I have some confidence that there's gonna be a, a lot of progress, but I also think that systems and infrastructure and encouragement and communication and sharing best practices are all gonna be necessary. And part of that work is on our committee. Um, we're, we're a group of about 10 people uh, and we recognize these challenges are, are way bigger than us and that they're going to take a, a, a huge team effort throughout Vermont. But going back to what Susanna had to say, one of the things in our charge clearly is that of the three groups, we're really partly designed to be listening to Vermonters and reflecting with them and carrying their thoughts uh, to the governor and to others. And so we are, I, I think it's beholden on us to to make sure that we're connecting with historically marginalized people, with vulnerable Vermonters, with people who aren't necessarily historically policy makers, but who, whose lived experience is just as important as anyone else's and, and contributions to who we are as a people are just as important. Um, so that, I, I agree, that's like a fundamental part of our future resiliency and, and yet it's, it's a huge cultural task that's not gonna be done overnight, but we're, we're going to be working uh, in that arena as well. One piece of um, the pandemic that I think has come forward really strongly in what you were saying about clicking local 
is the emphasis on worker health and safety. Um, and, you know, I have, being a good, you know, middle-class Brattleboro person, I have long wanted to shop local as much as possible and avoid Amazon. And I've, you know, always known they had terrible labor practices, but would occasionally, you know, default to buying something there. And now um, the sort of heightened sense of the health implications of bad labor practices makes those choices that much more visceral. And so knowing that by sort of, you know, clicking from on a corporation to buy something, I'm very aware of that, that I might be risking someone's life who needs to work and has no choice but to work and risk their life just so that I can get like whatever, my son's new basketball in the mail. Um, and then, so when I think about buying local and what a, rec a local recovery would look like to sustain small businesses, what I'm hearing from a lot of community members is that they want to know that workers in our local stores, in our local restaurants are going to be safe through that recovery. Um, and I've heard a lot of pushback that there are no, you know, workers represented on any of the task forces. I'm sure you all have, you know, heard that complaint more than I have. Um, but, you know, even with the restaurant takeouts and that the fact, the idea that sort of takeout was safe for the consumer, but it was never clear to me how takeout was safe for the folks who were cooking in the restaurants. You know, restaurant kitchens are crowded places. And so I'm trying to figure out how, as we step into this next stage of the economy, you know, we're talking about outside cafe seating, we're talking about, you know, um, folks who work in stores wearing masks. We're talking about all of these things. And how do we build in that, you know, emphasis on the value of the essential worker? Um, you know, we've raised unemployment compensation. We've really, you know, understood social distancing more. Um, we have those guards up in the grocery store. How do we carry those like larger visceral understandings that we now have of worker safety and workers' rights into the new main street, um, into that new, our new vision of a community economy that's less exploitive than the one we're coming out of. Really gets at um, a critical piece of moving forward and talking about moving from crisis to creation, which is we've really got to come to terms as a state with, and as a country, with who are, who and what are the drivers and the real backbone of our economy. We talk about worker safety and um, you phrased it really well. I think you said the health implications of bad labor practices. And this is a fight that our, for example, our state's migrant workers have been fighting for years, the health impacts of bad labor practices. And for many people in our state, when it had to do with, um, when it had to do with people of different ethnic groups, they didn't seem to care or find it important. When in reality, our state relies so heavily on agriculture to prop up its economy. And I think that we saw this uh, confirmed during the pandemic when our agricultural workers were categorized as essential workers, which really begs the question, are we essential to your bottom line or are we essential to the fabric of your state? This is critical. And now that we've seen that divide grow and extend beyond just people of color and people who are vulnerable legally in the country, but now to more vulnerable Vermonters who work in retail and in restaurants. Now I think the issue has come to broader light and people see the urgency much more now that it impacts people who are more than just people of color. And I think that that's so important because recognizing who is essential, what is essential, and how do we protect that so that we can click local so that we can shop local and so that we can protect other Vermonters regardless of where they come from where they live or what they look like that's really really key and I really get back to this point about Vermonters kind of have to get over themselves in a sense um, and what I mean by that is I know that we have an intense intense fierce pride of the state and of having longevity in the state and um, having the sort of archetypal look of a Vermonter. And yet, 
when we look at this pandemic and we look at the years before the pandemic at what has really been the, the motor that's kept the state going, it is low-income populations, it is people of color, it is um, people who are new to the country, but who have stayed. For example, I think you know, last year or the year before, immigrant-led businesses in Vermont generated $84 million in net revenue. You know, um, if we had had wage parity in 2015, our state GDP would have been 0.42 billion with a B dollars higher. Everybody in the state benefits from a bigger and more robust economy. And we could have achieved that in that year if we just paid people fairly for their work across racial groups. So it's things like that that I think get at the one of the, cru the crux of the issue, which is that equity impacts everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not just a handout for specific groups. It really is something that has a collective benefit. And now that we've seen folks who are exposed through their jobs uh, in this crisis, I think, I hope that people are going to be more understanding and more accepting of the fact that unless we demonstrate that we value all of these folks, we're not really going to be resilient as a state. You know, I think it's about admitting to ourselves and to each other who's, who's had a hand in keeping us going, you know, and, and about um, protecting folks as such. On that, I don't know if really that's a question, but. <laughs> it does. It was a brilliant point, incredibly clearly said. And I think at that moment, we should go to a brief break and hear from our. We actually don't have time. We've gone so over that I'm going to put the <laughs> underwriters at the end of this show. Fabulous. Let's yeah, keep on going. So we're going to keep going. And, and the reason we didn't break is because what you were saying was so fascinating. I completely lost track of time. Um, yes, your host at work here. Um, I love that phrase, um, equity has a collective benefit, because one thing I've been bumping up against when I'm talking to people in the community as a, as a journalist is I'm starting to hear this narrative of look at all these handouts, look at all these free meals we're giving. Do these people deserve, you know, these people deserve this? What's this going to cost me in the long run? You know, starting to feel that pushback um, against what I think we have when it comes to social services, some of the, the narratives we've been telling ourselves about who needs services and why, um, whether they're accurate or not. Um, and, and so thank you so much, uh, Susanna, because I, I will be using that phrase in upcoming conversations. But I also would love to, to just circle back to that. You know, how do we, you know, I, I think when, when people say those, you know, that, or, or I hear that pushback, what I'm hearing is someone else's fear about how they think society should work or that they won't be getting their own piece of the pie, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, how do we, how do we kind of push back against those fears and, and, and reduce them, I guess, is kind of what I'm struggling with here. Can I like tweak that question slightly? Yes, please. <laughs> so what I've seen in this time and what I, Susanna, I heard you describing, um, is how much Vermonters have understood viscerally for the first time, the importance of different folks in their community um, and say, and the importance of state benefits for a wider variety of people with say unemployment insurance or um, the magnitude of our dependence on frontline workers or whatever it is. But I, people understand that viscerally in a way that many folks haven't um, for decades. And so yeah. I'm trying to figure out how do we carry that like visceral feeling that's slightly uncomfortable to sit with and requires some emotional resiliency. How do we carry that into our planning work? Um, so I guess it's the positive side of the, you know, negative coin. Yeah, and I mean, I think it really gets at uh, something that you mentioned, Olga, earlier, which was the scarcity mentality, right? This is the idea that a lot of people see life as zero sum. They say, well, if you're gaining, then that means necessarily that I'm losing. It, it also gets at this separate fates mentality that, that implies that you and I are on different tracks. 
just because perhaps our lives look a little bit different and that those two tracks are not interdependent or, or don't cross. Um, and those are really false narratives that we tell ourselves that are extremely dangerous. One example that I can think of off the top of my head is school tax. A lot of folks say, well, I don't have children. Why should I have to pay a school tax? And it's like, well, you benefit from having an educated population around you. Do you want, when you get older, to be taken care of by a bunch of dummies? No, then pay your school tax. So, you know, these are, these are some of the things that we think about when we assume that certain handouts uh, or other programs that don't appear on their face to directly impact us, they actually do in very deep ways. If we lost every undocumented person in our state, our economy would crumble. That's a fact. If no more Latino or African-American or indigenous people came to our state for tourism dollars, our economy would collapse. These are just facts. And so to your point about how do we, how do we move forward with that, it really is just about swallowing that bitter pill that we are wonderful in ourselves, but we can't do it by ourselves. You know, if you care about the local B&B that relies on, on ski dollars, if you care about having enough students so that your district doesn't have to close or merge, if you care about the pride that we have in cheese and milk, then you have to recognize that we don't do that on our own. And um, yeah, and I think, Paul, you wanted to say something. I didn't mean to dominate here. No, no, uh, I just think, I mean, I'm listening because it's all, it, this is a profound conversation and it's, it's not an easy one with a, like you turn a switch and things are changed. And Emily's question of how do you systematize this sort of cultural recognition that we're talking about for frontline workers or for people who've been historically marginalized or not necessarily immediately seen as, as Vermonters. Um, you know, I, I think it is a, a cultural shift that, and it's really good that people are talking about it in a pretty widespread way right now. To me, Emily, part of the, the frontline worker issue is one that's tactical and short term and you want it to be you know, at, at center stage with the Department of Health and the governor as they negotiate what's the best next step in practice. But it's also a fundamental thing that connects with each of us. Um, how do we connect and welcome people? How do we um, look to not just be accepting of difference, but welcoming and trying to learn from it and, and like open our, ourselves up personally to, um, think differently and to learn from other folks. And so I, I think that, that, that we're at a moment where people are having that conversation and that's really encouraging. But like your, your, your larger question, how do you systematize that? How do you turn it into policy? It's like, uh, unfortunately, culture precedes policy. <laughs> culture is first. And we, the, it's an area for creativity and growth, I think, for us as, as a people right now. And, uh, uh, to me, you know, we're, we're going into rural Vermont communities and there's often a sense, well, you know, you ask someone who they are and they say, well, I've been here for six generations, you know, I'm a real Vermonter. And you, you meet someone who's new in the community and it sometimes takes, especially in smaller towns, it takes a long time for people to be sort of welcomed in. And, you know, I think that one of the fundamental, like, responsibilities we have to the future is to welcome everyone as a Vermonter day one who wants to participate and contribute to our collective uh, place here. And, and if, you know, everyone is worried about the demographic challenge, the loss of youth and these things, if we don't have that feeling of openness in the way that we communicate, the way we reach out to our neighbors, including new neighbors, you know, how are we going to make progress on these issues? So, I, th I think it's a fundamental one and it's not an abstract thing where Montpelier is going to make a decision that sets the game going. It's like all of us have to be involved in um, a larger process of uh, kind of cultural and personal growth around it. And I think that's a fascinating opportunity. I I'd love to think that the current urgent situation helps us you know, recognize a certain oneness between people in the way that we um, the way that we move forward. I want to name something about that, about the welcoming and the trouble with welcoming. And um, for 
I think all of the decades that Vermont has been the place of respite or, um, you know, utopia or pandemic escape or whatever we want to call it, the folks from Hawaii um, have regularly come and exploited local communities. And um, whether that is interpersonally as, you know, through some really significant class bias and response to class bias, or whether that is um, what it's done to real estate markets. But folks who have, many folks that I know who have been here a while, and even myself when I first moved here and was waiting tables and sort of perceived as a local, um, have experienced that sort of wave of otherness that people who come from away put upon people who are here. And so I think we have to reconcile both of those things, the welcoming and then also the expectations around what it means to come into a community and actually be of it. And that is very difficult um, to be communicating that, to be communicating the positive norms in a way that is not shaming or blaming or othering. I, I wanna thank you for naming that, Emily, because as someone who grew up in Vermont, um, I sometimes feel if I bring that up, um, that, that I'm just being cranky. <laughs> so I appreciate you naming that. Thank you. And I would love, I know we're almost out of time, but I would love um, to hear from Paul or, or Susanna on that. Or even if there's just anything you wanted to add or wish we had asked before we move on to the rest of our day. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it, it, it creates, I imagine for someone who, who's from Vermont or who's been in a community for a long time, that can create a feeling of um, maybe feeling taken advantage of or, or um, not, not valued in the way that, that we'd like to be valued. And, and that's difficult and it makes it hard for us to trust when the next group of people come in, right? And, and that, I suppose you could consider that a form of community trauma, right? Um, and we see that in other, in other places too. And, and usually it's in communities of, of color. And that's why Vermont is a unique place because in this place we can't use um, socioeconomics as a proxy for race, whereas in a lot of other jurisdictions we can. Um, so in that way, you know, Vermont is really a unique place. I will say that you know, being part of a community and contributing to a community, it, I think we're at a time right now where that's what people want, particularly young people. You know, I see this, um, oh, I can't, I can't think of the term that they use for it, but it's like this sort of renaissance of folksy sort of um, wanting to go back to the land and feel like, I'm thinking, you know, thinking of the rise of intentional communities and, and more and more, I think that people are looking for that sense of community. And I, I do think that we're gonna see a shift away from the kind of behavior that, that we're talking about towards something where people really feel like, like they're contributing to something and like they belong. Interestingly, um, Vermont is the second oldest state in the nation, but that doesn't tell the full story. You know, we have a median age of 44 in this state, older, the only older state is Maine, uh, but when you break that down by racial group, what's really interesting is that Vermonters of color, the median age is in the 20s. Hmm. Um, indigenous and white Vermonters, it's significantly higher. And so when we think about who's, who's keeping the state young, who's likely to come in, like young families and new families, um, I think we are really seeing a shift nationally in people wanting that sense of community. And it's my, it's my expectation and it's my hope that that kind of take, take, not give behavior that, that we're talking about um, is more on its way out and what's coming in is better than what was. Not than what was here, but what's coming in in terms of new arrivals to the state um, is gonna be of a different caliber than perhaps new arrivals to the state were in times past. Yeah, I, I think that you're, the, the point you're raising, Emily, is, is really important too, and I think you know, people who are working people and feel like other people come with expectations, um, that, like there's, there's sometimes natural tensions and part of those nat natural tensions have to do with economic disparity in this country. 
and the fact that you know people who are are working people they're they're um they are really careful in what they have to spend and they may be living more frugally in small towns and then people build a McMansion on the hill and want the same services they would have in some other place and you know there's a tension where you can feel resentment and there's a tension where newcomers with wealth may not understand and know how to participate locally and may you know frankly be not feel that welcome and part of that tension i think has to do with the demographic of who comes and who who doesn't feel um invited as much and uh we need people you know everyone says we need plumbers in vermont we need carpenters we need all kinds of people um in vermont and um this is a huge tension for us as a civilization right now uh, it's just um you know you look back historically at the, the kind of disparity we have now and we haven't seen it for a thousand years <laughs> um and so there's there there's a lesson in this that we have to work on too and, and i know we don't have a lot of time we're not going to solve it right now um but it but it is a fundamental challenge to you know no one wants vermont to be gentrified so that our young people and people who grew up here can't afford to live here anymore um and and that's another part of the danger um with with the disparities and the fact that people who move here tend to be people with more resources so this is this is um, there's an opportunity in that and there's a way to benefit um, and one would hope that uh, we are able to expand philanthropy and that we're able to welcome people's contributions to the future of their local and regional community um, and and so that's that's got to be part of our mission too well, we are just about out of time here on the Montpelier Happy Hour. And I know, Paul, that you, you need to get to a meeting. So I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, Susanna Davis, um, Racial Equity Director for the State of Vermont. Paul Costello, Executive Director for the Vermont Council on Rural Development. Thank you so much for being on the show, both of you. And thank you for bringing your expertise and your insight wonderful wonderful show and we hope we can come back and talk about these issues more in the future um we're gonna head out as always you can find the montpelier happy hour on wvew lp brattleboro 107.7 fm on our vermontitude soundcloud page our vermontitude facebook page and emily just quickly where can people find you emilykornheiser.org, ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us, ekornheiser at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week. Yeah.